Well, if someone asked you, why do you follow Christ, what would you say? Think about that for a second. If someone were to ask you, why do you follow Christ, what would you say? I've asked, I've asked different people, not here, but as I've spoken different places and uh, in Fayetteville, our hometown, um, Evan said this, my freshman year, I basically hit rock bottom. He said, um, I had nowhere to turn. A guy in my fraternity was a Christian, and I was finally ready to listen. Jesus changed me. Christy said, I follow Jesus. He's amazing. I love him. He says, ask and you will receive. At first, I didn't trust it, but now I know when it aligns with my life and his will, it's true. And then Julia said, honestly, at first I became a Christian because I didn't want to go to hell. Now I realize it's more than that. He helps me every day overcome life's difficulties. And so Evan, for him, it was rock bottom. Christy, life's amazing. Julia saved me from hell. And one of the things that these have in common, if you notice, is it's all about us, right? Like you ask someone why they come to Christ— and normally they say, I, I, a lot of eyes, a lot of eyes. And um, what I've come to kind of think through is, man, there's a, there's a lot of people who maybe just are me worshipers. They love me. And so it's like, well, Jesus loves me. I love me. That we have so much in common. And, um, you know, I think in my own life, my immediate need is what brought me to Christ. I mean, like a lot, of, like Ryan, I was a mess. But I can't stay there. And unfortunately, so many people stay there. And so for me, I had to kind of think through, how do I move from the me question to the you question? How do I move from the me question to the you question? So here's the me question. The me question is, what can God do for me? Oh, how many believers live in that world? What can God do for me? That's the me question. The you question is, what do you want me to do for you? What can God do for me? Me question. God, what do you want me to do for you? And so we're just going to look at not only why we follow Christ, but before we do that, let's back up and ask the question, why the disciples follow Christ? I, I was on this, uh, this app, and it was like a new word every day comes up to the, in your app, and it's like it tries to increase your vocabulary. So like um, quagmire came up, a mossy, squishy, greenish area. I don't use that ever. Um, sacrosanct came up. Sacrosanct. I'd never used the word sacrosanct. Sacrosanct means when someone's dead, you kind of, you know, you idolize them. You make them even more human than they were. And I think for me, that's what I do with the disciples, right? I, I totally sacrosanct them in Scripture. And before we ask, why do we follow Christ? I just wanted to pull back and say, why did the, the disciples follow Christ? These 12 guys, why did they say yes to Jesus? Now, of course, you have to understand the context, uh, which many of us know, the Jewish people were under the oppression of Rome. They were being taxed, oppressed, beaten. They were, their, their rights were being stripped from themselves by Rome. And so they were anxiously awaiting this Messiah because it's like, oh my goodness, when the Messiah comes, we are going to like crush Rome and, and move into um, to leadership. Here's what I've come to realize. The disciples followed Jesus early on, really up until his death, for one reason, themselves. I mean, you just can't get away from it. You cannot get away from it in the text. They, they, 
I mean, it's crazy. Even like you see John and James, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus says, follow me. And Zebedee's like, go, go. Oh, my goodness, a rabbi. Think of what you're going to learn. Think of who you're going to become. For, with me, you're just fishermen. You ever notice in the story of J James and John, their father doesn't say, wait, where are you going? We have fish. Because he knew what an opportunity to learn. Who, look at how much better their resume is going to look. And so what I want to do is I, I just want to say 16 times, 16 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is trying to crack the lens of the disciples with the me question. Jesus in his ministry is trying to move the disciples from the me question to the you question. He's trying to move them to what can God do for me to what do you want me to do for you. The, the one question Jesus wants the disciples to ask him, what do you want me to do for you? And, and he never has a chance to hear that. Instead, it's, what can you do for me? Sixteen times Jesus predicts his death, and it falls on deaf ears. Let me say that again. Sixteen times Jesus told the disciples, we are going to Jerusalem. I will be hung on a cross. I will be buried, and in three days rise again. Sixteen times. And every time they missed it because they were so focused on what can God do for me. So here's what I want to do, something easy. I want to look at Mark 8, 9, and 10. So if, you're ever, if you go back and want to lead a Bible study, really easy to do, Mark 8, 9, and 10. We're going to look at three of the 16 predictions, Mark 8, 9, and 10. And we're just going to ask the question, why did the disciples follow Jesus? Mark chapter 8, we'll start in verse 31. Here it is, Mark 8, 31. This is one of his first predictions. Jesus began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things. He will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he will be killed. He must be killed, but he will rise after three days. And, of course, the disciples are like, yes, Lord, we totally understand. We knew what we were getting into when we signed up. We knew this wasn't about us, but it's about you. I misread that next verse. I'm sorry. Peter rebukes him. Are you kidding me? Peter's like, uh, Lord, no. Look at this. This is not going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be your chief of staff. Like, this is not going to happen. Peter, I mean... He actually rebukes Jesus. Think of the irony in that. And if you were like there in the midst, would you be like, no, he did not. And then watch what Jesus does. I love what Jesus does. He basically tries every time he tries to mature their view. Peter, don't be, it's not about you. Don't ask, what can God do for me? And he, he tries to, every time at the end, he tries to show them it's not about what God does for you personally. Think about this. Jesus says this. This is how he responds to Peter in the next verse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're actually, you should be living dead before you die. You should be, you're dead before you die. It's not about you. Don't ask the what can God do for me. And he tries to move them in that direction. So the first prediction, 
the first time Jesus gives an ex- explanation of what's going to happen, Peter actually rebukes him. Okay, so let's just, uh, let's just uh, see if they fare better prediction two. Okay, how about prediction two? You know, maybe they just needed some time. They just needed some time. Prediction number two, here we go. Mark chapter 9, moving out of Mark 8, Mark chapter 9. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, rise again. He gives them even more information. He tells them how many days he's going to be buried. He says he will be killed. This is the most vulnerable thing he could share with his disciples. They didn't even hear it. They didn't hear him verbally say this. He said it out loud, but they didn't hear it. You know why they didn't hear it? They were talking to themselves. They were talking to each other. Do you know what? As he was sharing the most vulnerable moment of what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, they didn't hear it because they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. How does that even work? I'm his cook. I hold his cloak. I met his mom. I mean, how does that even, like, who, how, who determines who's the greatest? Was Judas like, I have the money bag. Peter's like, I've got the sword. They didn't even hear it. Why? Look at what they were arguing over. They're arguing over who would be the greatest. So I have uh, a lot of kids. I don't know um, exactly how many, but a lot. And um, one, of my, one of my kids, when he, you know, he's little and he loves to play games. He loves to play. He's got all the dress-up games. He's got Spider-Man. Uh, mass. He's got the Superman cape. He's got the the slingshot of Goliath uh, or David. And um, and 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 I came home one day from work, and he's like, "Dad, let's play a game." And I'm like, "Okay," because I'm trying to be a good dad. He's like, "I'm like, what do you want to play?" He's like, uh, "It's called the King Game." I'm like, "The King Game? I've never heard of it." He's like, "I made it up." I'm like, "Well, how do you play the King Game?" He's like, "Well, it's easy. Um, I put on a crown. You bow down to me and worship me." And I was like, really? Now, if you could picture it, he's in my, like, Barker lounger chair. You know, he's got cowboy boots on. He's got no shirt on. He's got, like, maybe a diaper. He's got a cape on. And he's got, he's made this green crown that he's cut out of, of, of paper. And it's, his head's so big, it's already broke twice. And he's like, Dad, bow down and worship me. Now, the king game is funny when you're six. But not so funny when you're still playing it when you're 46. And I think how many Christ followers are playing the king game with God? Here's what I want you to do for me. Here's what I want you to do for me. We're so interested in the gift, but not the giver. We're so about power, possessions, and praise for ourselves that we miss the one we should be living for. And don't fret, it's easy to do. Those closest to Christ did the same. It's so easy to do. And those closest to Christ did the same. But just like his first prediction in Mark 8, watch what Jesus does. He comes alongside them and he affirms them. He tries to mature their view. He says, guys, move past you, move past yourselves. It's not about you. Listen to what he says in the next verse. Again, he tries to mature their view. He tries to move them to here's what I want you, know, you to do for me, God, into what do you want me to do for you? He called the 12 and says, if anyone must be first, he must be last. What are you arguing about who's first? 
You know, how many times do I tell my kids as they're running for the ice cream shop, whoever's last goes first, and all of a sudden they just put on their brakes, you know, changing the way they're thinking, and that was what Jesus is trying to do. They're like, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the most important. All right. Third time. How are they going to do? There's 16 of these in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're only looking at three. Look at the third time. Here's the third prediction. Let's just recap. The first prediction of Mark 8, Jesus tells him he's going to be crucified. Peter rebukes him. The second time, he tells him he's going to be crucified and be in the ground three days. And what happens, they didn't hear him. Why? Because they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. Let's see how well they fare in the third prediction. Here we go. Mark 10, next chapter, easy to do in the Bible study. Mark 8, 9, 10, how disciples view Jesus. Again, He took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed. I mean, so much more information. He will be betrayed to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, kill him, spit on him, flog him. And three days later, he will rise. Is he done yet? No. Is he done yet? No. Is he done yet? Shh, no. He's still talking? Yeah. Okay, he's done. Ask him, James. Uh, Jesus. First of all, that was awesome, what you just said. I, 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 James and I love that. But, um, we want you to do whatever we ask. This is the next verse. And watch this. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Oh my goodness, do you see that in the text? The very question Jesus wanted them to ask him, he asked them. Did you see that? What do you want me to do for you? The very question he's beckoning the disciples to ask them, which they never do. He mentors to them by speaking the very question. Well, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left. We want to be the most important people in the kingdom. I mean, other than you, we want to be the most important people in the kingdom of God. I mean, think about that. This is, they're headed to Jerusalem. This is year three of his ministry, right? I mean, they are so far out of Galilee and they're, they're, they're on their way. And what does Jesus do? He does what he did all 16 times. He tries to show them It's not, what can God do for me, but what do you want me to do for you? And he tries to mature their perspective. He calls the 12. Okay, guys. And you know the other other 10 disciples are like, James, John, what did you say? Like, what did you say? Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, for the disciples, it was following Jesus for what I can get, not what I can give. And I think we all are surrounded by Christ's followers who have that perspective too. 
And the problem with that perspective is when hardships come, when persecution comes, when uncomfortable conversation comes, I don't want to share my faith if it's all about what can I get because all I get is made fun of, backlash, and people not wanting to hang out with me. We become disillusioned with trials. When hardships fall, we fall away because we were in it for ourselves. So Jesus realizes, okay, you know, you guys are, I'm telling you 16 times that I'm going to be betrayed and, and be, be crucified, but you're not getting it. So now he brings, a, he brings around a life lesson. This happens a lot of times. Jesus teaches the disciples, and then all of a sudden some random guy needs to be brought down through the roof where the disciples can actually have a life lesson on this teaching. This is no different. He's teaching, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified. And they're like, what? We want you to get behind me. I rebuke you. You know, can we have the best? So what he does is he brings a blind person to him so that he can show the disciples how to respond. I mean, this is in the same chapter. This is right after Mark 8, 9, and 10. Right after that, he says this in the last half. He says, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man, blind from birth, has no hope. He's by the road. He's heard for three years this miracle worker, Jesus. He's heard of his reputation. And now he's coming by the very road he begs at. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's like, shut up, man. Shut up. You are dirty and blind and untouchable. Shut up. And yet this made him shout more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then the unthinkable happens. Call him. Call him. Everybody stops. And look at the question Jesus asked the blind man. The very thing he asked James and John, and the very question he wants us to ask him. But we never ask it. Jesus models to the disciples in this moment this question. What do you want me to do for you? Guess who's within earshot? The disciples. And again, our immediate need, our immediate need brings us to Christ, but it doesn't keep there. Of course, the blind man's going to say, Rabbi, I want to see. Rabbi, I want to see. And so Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. Go. Go. Now, if you've been blind since birth, and Jesus, and when you're 40, says, you can see now, go. Oh, my goodness. Think of everywhere you would want to explore. Think of the th people you'd want to see, the people you'd want to thank, the, th the rivers you'd want to see with your eyes after you've heard them. Go. Go. And immediately he receives his sight and doesn't go. He says, I just want to be near you. I just want to be near you. 
the creator, sustainer, the one whom the dead will hear his voice rise, looks at this blind man in Jerusalem who is unloved and unkept and says the very words he wishes his followers today would say. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Again, if you only live the life of it's about me, you're going to be disillusioned. Your faith's going to be marginalized in your, your life. It's just going to be a hobby. It's just going to be a hobby. So many Christ followers that I know say, God, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to post this on Instagram. I'm going to let my kids go here. I'm going to be a part of this outreach. But I'm expecting a back-end blessing. And I just realized that's not a relationship. That's a contract. That's a lucky rabbit's foot called Jesus. Man, it's not working. I'm rubbing it right. I'm staying pure. I'm reading my Bible occasionally. I, I, I'm tithing a little. I'm involved in church, yet, nothing, yet I'm not receiving anything back. And matter of fact, he just wants more. But I keep rubbing this thing called the Bible, and I keep doing these things, anticipating that I should be getting something out of this. Instead, we need to shift our understanding. What can God do for me? The me question pushed out of the way. And maybe it, that's the application for the week. Lord, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to ask a simple question. Like, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We, we have dear friends, the Morton family in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and over Christmas they called Christmas Day. And they said their seven-week-old daughter had a case, had developed incredible uh, a, a, uh, pneumonia that was intensifying, and she might not live through the night. She set up a 24-hour prayer um, just to pray for her little daughter. And, and her name, um, the wife's name is Lee, and my wife and Lee are very good friends, and my wife's like, I'm going to call her. I mean, this is like 11 at night, Christmas. I'm like, she's not going to answer, and Lee answers. Jess. And Jess is like, Lee, we're praying for you. I've set it up. I've signed up for 3 a.m. And, and Lee said, you know, I know God has me here because there's a nurse or someone who needs him. And this is the perfect time to share on Christmas. And then she said, you know, Jess, God never promised me motherhood. And you go, that's someone with an attitude and a perspective of what do you want me to do for you? Oh my gosh, imagine, enter, imagine entering that situation with, God, it's about me. It's about me. What are you going to do for me? And then the baby dies. Or the baby recovers. Either one, your life still doesn't change because it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And so how, how's this, how does this apply to us? I was thinking today, you know, I was thinking about us, and by us I mean me too, and um, I was thinking, you know, 
what are three simple applications for us in here? You know, we're all very wise on who God is. We're, we're deep, diving deep theologically. But what are some applications for us when it comes to this question of what do you want me to What if you said to God, God, what do you want me to do for you? And I, was, I just wrote down, like, what would he say? What would he say? And I think for some, if you've kind of heard and been challenged from big life this week, I think for some... God would say, if we really said, what do you want me to do for you? I think God would say, be more vocal about your faith. You've been living for a decade at this job in this neighborhood, and you've never shared your faith with people in your community. You have their friendship, but you've never shared their faith in your workforce. I think God might say to us, be more vocal about our faith. I mean, that's a challenge totally for me as well. Um, remember that first statistic in the opening morning on Sunday morning, 95% of Christians have never led someone to Christ and 93% have never tried. And so maybe you're, 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 maybe the, the reason you haven't shared your faith is because you, you live in that me world. Um, a, a friend of mine told me a story. He's like, Todd, we moved into this new neighborhood. My wife and I, we wanted to start a, start a great ministry. But we really just thought, you know, let's just live in such a way, you know, um, you know, that f great St. Francis of Assisi, share Christ always and if needed, use words. They're like, man, that's just kind of our motto. And so they were just like, we're going to live. We, we, we served our neighbors like crazy. We would take out their trash. We'd push in their trash. We'd rake their leaves. We'd mow sometimes their lawn. We'd take them over. And like three years later of doing this, the neighbors still never, we were like Jesus to them in the flesh, but they never asked us about our faith. So finally they're like, well, that's not getting us anywhere. So we thought, well, let's just share the gospel. So they go over there, you know, by the mailbox, they meet, and they just bring up Jesus and share the gospel, and the neighbor goes, oh my gosh, for the last three years, my wife and I thought you were Mormon. Aren't you glad Jesus used words? We must use words. I know it's uncomfortable, I know it's not your gift, but nobody cares. You must use words. Maybe for some of us, it's Will you be more vocal about your faith? Do you know what Friday is? Does anybody know what holiday Friday is? What is it? Juneteenth. Juneteenth is Friday. As you're driving out, I hope this story sticks with you. Some are like, what's Juneteenth? I didn't know what Juneteenth was. Here's Juneteenth. I got it right here. Juneteenth, uh, June 19th. That's where it gets its name, Juneteenth. June 19th, 1865. The Union soldiers, led by Major Gordon Granger, landed in Galveston, Texas. And they worked their way north all through all, past Houston, past uh, Austin, past Dallas, up, uh, uh, up all the way to Tyler. And they're, they're, they were sharing the slaves are free. The Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves are free. And it happened June 19th, 1865. The problem? Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation January 1st, 1863, two and a half years earlier. It took two and a half years for that news to get to Texas. 
That means for two and a half years you had people who were slaves who died thinking they were slaves. But really they were free. During those two and a half years you had babies born of slaves, thus being slaves, but really they were free. But nobody told them. They were living as slaves for two and a half years, when in reality they were free. How many in our life, we've spent the time building friendships, but we failed to tell them the Emancipation Proclamation. We have failed to say, by the way, you're free. You're free. For some of us, we just need to be, if God said, what do you want me to do for you? For some of us, it might be lead GLC with a, a tool from Big Life and a, a, an encouragement to go share with some of these people we need to. For some at GLC, for some of us, I just had this down. If God said, what would you, if we said, what do you want me to do for you? God might say, eliminate hurry. Eliminate hurry. Dallas Willard, who died a few years ago, who was a great spiritual giant in spiritual formation, wrote several books, was asked this question. What's the number one thing I as a Christ follower need to do to grow? What do, what's the number one thing I, as a Christ follower, need to do to grow? He didn't say pray, he didn't say read the Bible, and he actually didn't say share, his, share your faith. He said this, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. How many of us and our peers, we are distracted from distractions by distractions? Think of how many of us in this room live a hurried life. We wake up, we get the kids to school, we get to work, we come home from work. One wife, you know, one, one spouse goes to ballet, one spouse goes to soccer. We come back, we meet at seven, we stop by Sonic, we bring the kids home, we get the stuff in the, out of the car, in the house, get the house clean, get homework done, get the kids bathed. Then finally they'll go to bed at 9.30 and for the next two hours I'm on social media. And then we do it all over again. It's, it's no wonder the kingdom of God is not advancing. All Christ's followers are busy among themselves. And we think that's fine. No time for God or his work or life's interruptions are God's invitations. But we don't have time for those. I'm just so busy. Ask any Christ follower at any time during Monday through Friday how they're doing, and they will answer by one word. Busy. Man, we're just busy. This is busy. Yeah, travel sports. It's back on. It's going to be crazy busy. Yeah, after COVID, I've got so much work to do. It's going to be busy. I don't even know what I'm going to do. Like, I don't even have to, I'm probably not going to brush my teeth. It's going to be busy. I'm just busy. It's like a badge of honor. Why? I've tried the practice of when someone says, hey, man, I know you got a lot going on. You know, actually, I don't. I'm, I'm literally discipling a guy right now who's leading what I would consider one of the best mobilization ministries. He's asked me to call him once a week for the next uh, three months and ask him one question. Are you slowing? Are you slowing? He's like, I've got to add margin. And the problem with most Christ followers, we don't have margin. Listen to this stat. 
the average person, to, I thought this was so high, and then I'm like, well, maybe it's not. The average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. The average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. For better or for worse, to Google or Siri or not, the average person touches their phone 2,000. It's like one, social, uh, one psychologist said, continuous partial attention is the new normal. It's like we're here, but we're not really. It's like I'm here, but not really. I'm, I'm not all here. I'm thinking, I'm like to-do list, I'm taking notes. I mean, I'm here, but not really. The best thing about COVID, if there's a light in the tunnel, it slowed me way down. I mean, my plans are buried. And they're buried for the next three months. The question is, will I learn from it or just go back to a hurried life? For some in here, maybe it's slow down. I just, Paul the Apostle, think about all those mission trips, what, like 19,000 miles he traveled over three continents. And what does he say to the church of Thessalonica? You'd think he'd be like, man, you can sleep in heaven. <laughs> you know, like, go hard now. You know what he says to the church of Thessalonica? As he's trying to launch a church in Thessalonica, okay, guys, gear it up, gear it up, here we go, gear it up, pack your schedule, gear it up, gear it up. He says this to the church of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4.10, I urge you, brothers, make it your ambition, lead a quiet life. Oh, my gosh. Bring, bring margin into your life. Slow down. Turn off your phone. Leave your phone. Don't tell people you're busy. Never say that. See what happens when you're like, I have tons of time. Learn to say no. That was one of the things I told my friend on the phone. I'm like, do you ever say no? He's like, no. <laughs> I was like, actually, you do, but to the wrong things, you know? <laughs> that was actually really funny, by the way. Um, Here's, an, here's the third one. I'll give you one more. I, I, I couldn't think of any. I actually couldn't think of many. You guys are such a great bunch. Um, uh, and I know you have a. Uh, I just thought of these three. So I, I hope they land because these are the three that God gave me for this moment. So more vocal, slow down. And then here's the third one. I don't know who this is for. Um. If you left here and said, what do you want me to do for you, Lord? I think for some of us is don't get your identity in what people think. Don't get your identity in what people think. I mean, I'm, we're, we're all fame junkies at the core. We're fame junkies. We want fame. And fame in our small little world, our small little peer groups. And so what I post you know, what I, what I share on social media, it's all for my fame. Um, it's all for my fame. Here's a study on social media. It's the most exhaustive study on social media to date. It came out of University of Pennsylvania. Um, it came out about two months ago. They literally interviewed thousands of young adults, and here's what they realized. I'll just read the finale. The, the title of the study says it all. Social media increases depression and loneliness. So think about that with your kids. I mean, I know it's hard to say, hey, get off Instagram, but if you want them to be depressed and lonely, put them on there. 
I know great people who are doing great things on Instagram, but it's hard. It's a hard, it's hard. And imagine being 14 and doing it. So it's really hard. Social media use increases depression and loneliness. And here's what Melissa Hunt, who did the study, she was the lead psychiatrist. She says this, here's the bottom line. Using less social media leads to significant decreases in depression and loneliness. Man, one study came out that said if the average person in America stopped social media, they could read 412 books a year. Think about that. If the average person in America stopped social media, they could read 412 books a year. I mean, I, I find myself as an avid reader of two a month. What's that put me at? Any math guys in the room? What's two a month? Can anybody answer that? What's two a month? I mean, people, people look at me and act like I'm like a, read, a reader, and they're like, how many books do you read? And I'm like, two a month. They're like, no way. And, of course, I'm like, well, I'm busy, too. <laughs> and they're like, you do that while you're busy? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, but 24? Yeah, if I push pause on social media all the time spent, I could do 400. So, again... I don't know who that's for. Let's go back to the disciples. I gave them a bad rap. I gave them a bad rap. They never really got it until I think one thing happened. I mean, even post-resurrection, you ready for this? The th one thing the disciples say to Jesus after he rose again, because you would think it'd be like, when, if, I to, if I were to say to you, when did the disciples finally get it? Many of us would be like, after the resurrection. I'd be like, yeah, and then I read this verse in Luke, and it says, After he rose from the dead, the disciples said to him, Lord, now are you going to restore Israel? Like, that's, that's right after the resurrection. They're like, oh my gosh, that was an awesome magic trick. We didn't see that coming. I couldn't, know, I couldn't hear you predict your death because James and John kept arguing who was the best. But that was great. Now after the resurrection, Lord. After the resurrection, they didn't get it. When did they get it? Acts 2. When they were in that upper room and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they crowd out to the streets and Peter cries out and 5,000 are saved and then 3,000 more and then Stephen's stoned and then James is killed and the apostles are scattered and they have this uh-oh moment, and they realize, man, we were asking the wrong question all along. It's not what can God do for me. It's what do you want me to do for you, Lord? And you know what the Lord said when they finally asked the question? You know what the Lord said to the disciples when he fi they finally asked the question? The Lord said, I want you to die for me. I want you to die for me. Here's how the disciples died. James killed with the sword, Peter crucified, the other James stoned, Andrew crucified, Matthew beheaded, Philip crucified, Thomas thrust, thrust with a spear, then burned alive, Bartholomew crucified, Thaddeus crucified, Simon crucified. Now for us, when we say, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? He's not probably going to say physically die, but he is going to say, 
I want you to live for me. Not, not asking what can, what can I get out of this, but what do you want me to do for you? And so I think the question is, as we leave here, what, what are you going to choose? The me perspective or the what do you want me to do for you, Lord? And so, Father, as, as we just conclude this teaching, I just pray that you would show us specifically this week some good application. Again, whether it's seeing the world within our zip code, whether it's pushing pause on social media, whether it's sharing our faith, whether it's creating margin, slowing down, and saying no to some good things so that we can do the best things. Just give us some good application. We ask this in your name. Amen.